Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm joined today by Alana Goodman, who is senior investigative reporter at the Washington Free Beacon, as well as the co-author with Daniel Halper of A Convenient Death, The Mysterious Demise of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, The Spectator is offering a special subscription deal in which you can get a free copy of that book, A Convenient Death, The Mysterious Demise of Jeffrey Epstein, if you go to spectator.us forward slash Jeffrey, that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dash Epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N, and you will get three months of The Spectator US for $19.99 in dollars, and also a copy of this very intriguing book. Now, Alana, we're going to be talking about the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine was arrested in New Hampshire yesterday. This came as something of a surprise to me because I assumed she'd have disappeared somewhere outside of America. She does after I have a French passport, I think. Were you surprised that she was found in New Hampshire? Very surprised. There were a lot of rumors about where she was. I think there was even a report, I forget which publication it was in, The Sun maybe, saying that she had been spotted in Paris. I I think a lot of people thought that she was in, she was either in France or she was maybe in London. I had heard like rumors about the Israeli embassy and and things like that. But um, yeah, it was very surprising. I mean, she, especially because she was born in France, she had the citizenship there. Um, and she could have avoided extradition if she was out there. You know, there's no, we don't know of any specific ties that she had to that area of New Hampshire. I will say, like, the last known location that she was, that, you know, confirmed to be at was um, in Manchester-by-the-Sea up in northern Massachusetts, which mm. is about an hour from there. And, and that was um, at the time of Jeffrey Epstein's death. She was apparently living there with a male friend, at a male friend's house over there. So I guess she's been, she's been in that area for a while for whatever reason, but definitely shocking. Well, let, let's talk a bit about her uh, complicity or alleged complicity in the crimes of Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, in numerous accounts, she is portrayed as often the instigator, the sort of the organiser, sort of a pimp figure almost for Jeffrey Mm -hmm. Epstein. She procured young girls for him. You have an excellent chapter in your book called The Accomplice about her. What's your impression of her guilt in his crimes? Tell me a little bit about that. So they had a very weird relationship which we get into in the book there was um she kind of got from him his uh, his money at the time that she met him her her family which she was born into a lot lot of wealth the daughter of robert maxwell and but she was broke at the time they they had gone broke and so she met jeffrey epstein and he had money and glenn had a great rolodex of connections and that was kind of their what their relationship was based on in the beginning, and it was sort of like this partnership that they had together. Uh, in addition to being his on and off girlfriend, she she was also managing his houses for quite a while. It, it's actually very interesting because when I talked to friends of Epstein, 
they said, you know, he wouldn't necessarily refer to her as his girlfriend. Sometimes he, like, would deny that she was his girlfriend, but they would be sleeping in the same bedroom. And so it was just a very kind of weird situation. From people who I spoke to who knew Glenn, their view on this was that she would not have gotten involved in something like this, so you know, the sex trafficking and all of that, if not for Jeffrey Epstein. He was, it was really kind of to feed his desire for these young girls. Um, and she, she really cared about him and loved him and was kind of, you know, agreed to go along with a lot of sick and evil stuff and, and not just go along with it, but, you know, uh, help him as an accomplice as we lay out in the book. Yes, there's quite, a sad, there's, there's quite a sad bit at the end of the chapter where I think one of her friends, is it Goodman, another Goodman, says, you know, she she sort of dreamed that one day she'd, she'd settle down with him. She thought that... Yeah, she, you know, thought that if she stayed around with him for long enough that he would eventually marry her. And that was a mistake that other girlfriends of Epstein's made as well. I mean, he was just not somebody who wanted to be married it's sad. It's still pretty <laughs> weird, though, right? It's also, you know, she was an adult, and it, she's responsible for the yeah. things that she has done, and, and that can be proven in court. I mean, it's, it's still pretty weird, isn't it, that, you know, the sort of, my boyfriend will be okay if he just gets out of his uh, <laughs> grooming and abusing young girls phase. Yeah. No, it was really, it was really kind of like this, and weird codependency. And something she, as, as you've already sort of referred to, she, for Epstein had a kind of outsider complex. You describe it very well in the book, that he was felt like a kind of lower middle-class Jewish kid from Brooklyn, and he was in this very yeah. glamorous international world, and she gave him sort of legitimacy in that world. Exactly. And, you know, he, he stuck out. He was somebody who didn't graduate college. And he always, that's kind of like why he would always like wear his Harvard shirt. You'd always see him in like photos of him wearing a Harvard sweatshirt and trying to associate with all these academics and professors and things like that. Because, you know, although he was a smart guy, he never graduated from college. And I think that there was a part of him that really wanted that prestige, you know, and for people to think that he was this really intelligent guy. So he would set up salons with academics and they'd be discussing some theory and whatever. And he, he would just interrupt the conversation with like, what does that have to do with pussy? So it was, <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of a, he was kind of a crude guy, but he wanted to be accepted by this, like the academic world. And there's quite a lot, you touched on his Jewish background, there's quite a lot of conspiracy theories about Epstein and then they get wrapped up with a lot of anti-Semitic stuff quite often. There's often insinuations that he was compromised by Mossad and certainly with Ghislaine, there are interesting questions about her father's relationship with Israeli intelligence. Her father was, you know, said to have been involved with Israeli intelligence and uh, other potentially working with other intelligence agencies. I mean... I think that Jeffrey Epstein wanted to give people the impression that he was involved in it with intelligence. Like he, one of his friends mentioned to me, this is um, someone who was friends with 
Epstein for many decades, and he said that Epstein would often say things like, well, you know, at Langley, they used to tell us this or, or whatever, just kind of implying that he was connected to the CIA. He just like, he liked to give that impression. But, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, do you think that was, was because that? he was a, that's part of his con man routine? I mean, that he was a serial con man with his... Well, that, that's, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we, we were not able to infer anything that, you know, solidly tied him to any sort of intelligence operations but he certainly wanted to give people that impression i mean my sense of it is usually people who are involved in these things it's not something that they're gonna like be boasting about so you know i mean it's certainly possible and belen definitely had the connections she had a lot of connections with high-ranking you know israeli officials obviously she was connected very well connected in uh, the UK um, she, and close friends with Prince Andrew, who she brought and introduced to Epstein. So, you know, she really had those connections, I, I think, more more so than Epstein did yes. to be in a position to be, like, trading in, in, in information with foreign governments. But, again, I, I saw, you know, nothing to definitively establish that in the course of reporting on it. But one thing that does seem clear is that Epstein kept files on the people who he embroiled in his abusive schemes. And, I mean, the presumption there is that he was keeping dirt, as it were, compromat on rich and powerful people in order to buy himself cover later. Yeah, so one of his friends who we spoke to said that when he one time he went to Epstein's apartment in New York and Epstein basically spent the whole time pointing out cameras all over the place. He was like very proud of this system of cameras he had set up. This was after his first stint in, in jail in 2007. So yeah, he had set up this like elaborate surveillance system in his ha- in his New York home, like which included the bathroom. He had cameras in there and the friend was like, you know, after that, I, I was like, not interested in staying there, obviously, because, you know, it's, it's what is he collecting this information for? Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was a big concern for friends of his. And the theory then would be that he was he was quite often perhaps was even extorting his so-called friends. Yeah, there are questions about that. What was he using this information for? He He liked to draw things out of people. So, for example, like when he was traveling around with Bill Clinton, like he would try to engage him in different, you know, try to find out about different like sexual activities that Clinton was involved in and things like that. On um, one occasion, so when he was flying to, I think it was Africa with Clinton on his jet, he asked Clinton about Monica Lewinsky because Epstein was like obsessed with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. You know, Monica Lewinsky was not his taste, apparently. And so he was like, I don't understand why Clinton would be with her, blah, blah, blah. So he, he asked him about it on the flight. And Clinton told him, you know, well, she was the only girl in the White House. The government was shut down, you know. And so like kind of, I guess, defending the situation. But, yes. um, yeah, he also, there was also another time, and this is a story told to me by Alan Dershowitz, where Epstein was flying, to, had flown to Asia with Bill Clinton, and 
Epstein was at a hotel room party with Mick Jagger, and there were apparently a lot of girls there. And Dershowitz said it was described to him as sort of like an orgy. And uh, Bill Clinton, they invited Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton walked in and saw what was happening and was kind of like, this is not my scene, and walked out, supposedly. Wow. (laughs) So, you know, it was like, Epstein's like to try to get get this kind of information and maybe like compromising stuff on people who, you know, powerful figures who he knew. Um, and then he would share them and he would talk to other people about them and he'd brag about it. So. And your book contains the, the bombshell revelation or certainly strong claim that Clinton and Ghislaine, Bill Clinton and Ghislaine Maxwell appeared to have had some sort of relationship. Yes. <laughs> that was actually described to us as the reason why Bill Clinton was spending a lot of time with Epstein. It was kind of a good cover for him to be around Glenn because, uh, you know, Glenn was constantly with Epstein and it was a way to be able to, like, travel with her. And that was kind of the basis at that point of why Clinton continued the relationship with Epstein. I mean, they did not seem to really have a strong fondness for each other. Epstein did not like Clinton personally, and uh, Clinton was kind of just using him to uh, be able to carry on this affair well, with Glenn. Well, now Ghislaine is in custody, and I just wondered, if you were to be doing the interrogation of her, what would be the first thing that you'd like to know from her? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. I mean, I I would like to know about you know, name names. I mean, what did she see? She was his closest confidant for many, many years, allegedly deeply involved in this sex trafficking operation. And she lived with him for a lot of this time and she managed his household affair. So she is in a position to know like where all of the bodies are buried in this situation. You know, Jeffrey Epstein confided in her about these things. So I, I, I would want to know who are the other men who were involved in this. And there's a lot of speculation, inevitably, after the mysterious death of Epstein in prison, that her life isn't safe either. There's a lot of very powerful people who really would like her to be quiet forever. Yeah. I mean, what do you think it's possible, credible, that she could be whacked in jail? Yeah, I think the attorney, US Attorney General needs to explain to the public what has changed since Epstein was in prison. I mean, there's still a lot that we don't know about his death. There's still a lot of questions about it, um, as we outline in the book. And I feel like we just need to know from the Department of Justice, what have you done to fix the problems with, like, with the surveillance, the issues with video going missing or not working, guards not doing their not doing their checks on time yeah i'm just like how are you going to make sure that she is secure in federal custody and honestly i think that her her lawyers have a pretty good case for asking that she you know for getting her out on bail on this because they can say they can just point to what happened with epstein and say look this is like this is not a secure situation and we don't believe that the Bureau of Prisons is in a position to protect our client. 
Well, Alana, and that, that leads me to the inevitable question. And I think in your book, you set it out quite well. You set out the different possibilities around his death. But do you think yeah. Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? I think that from what I am, what I, we found during our investigation, I don't think that you could dismiss foul play. I think that there are a lot of questions about his death still. I think, you know, when you talk to Dr. Michael Bodden, who was a forensic pathologist who, who sat in on the autopsy and he was hired by, um, by Epstein's legal team. When you talk to him about the broken bones and how the, you know, he, he says that this is more consistent with homicide. He's an extremely well-respected forensic pathologist who has looked at, you know, thousands of suicides in the prison system over the, in the New York prison system over the years. So I, I, I just don't, I don't think it can be dismissed at this point. And I think that the Department of Justice really needs to be more transparent about a lot of aspects about what happens in this case. One interesting theory that I hadn't thought about until I read your book was that what he may have been trying to do was fake a suicide and it went wrong. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting one too. You know, I, I thought it was odd when you look at the pictures of the cell where he died, the top bunk, the mattress was removed and put on the floor. And it's like, well, why would that mattress be removed and placed on the floor? I guess if you were to hang yourself from, you know, the the bunk bed was not very high. And so to hang yourself on it, you would have to like kind of lean forward, maybe even get down on your knees and try to cut off your circulation that way. So, you know, it, that could be tough on your knees. So that could have been the reason if he had been trying to fake a suicide to get transferred. Also, he had died like several hours before the guards found his body at 6 a.m. They're, they were supposed to check on him around 3 a.m., never did, and that appears to be around the time that he died. Maybe they, maybe he expected them to come and find him before, you know, before he actually died. Uh, you're, you're an investigative reporter, quite an experienced one now, and did you find that your sort of worldview, were you already very sceptical about how power operates in the world, or do, do you, do, did you find it quite depressing or disheartening the story of Epstein and how his crimes seem to have been covered up. I did. I, I think that the saddest part of it is that he was able to evade justice for the last time. You know, it's like he was in federal custody. How was he allowed to die before he, you know, before the, the victims were able to have their day in court and to face him? I, I just think that's a shame. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's good that now Maxwell is going to trial and so maybe they can get a little bit of that justice through this. But yeah, it's a shame that the U.S. government really, they really failed on that point. Alana, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Please come on to Americano another time soon. Thank you so much, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.